The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Chinese GDP tops expectations in the third quarter, growing 4.9% and sidestepping concerns in the property sector, raising hopes that Beijing can hit its full-year growth target. The two-year Treasury yield hits a 17-year high after stronger-than-expected retail sales data. But Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan tells CNBC he still sees areas of concern. Consumers' activity has slowed down. The consumer is being slowed down by the interest rate environment and all the stuff going on. Hundreds of people are killed after a blast at a Gaza hospital hours before U.S. President Joe Biden touches down in Tel Aviv. Egypt's foreign minister tells CNBC Israel's actions over the last week may have violated humanitarian laws. The targeting of civilians, uh, the uh, uh, orders for uh, Forced displacement certainly do not conform to international humanitarian law and constitute a violation. Still no speaker. The race to replace Kevin McCarthy drags on after Republican Jim Jordan loses a ballot, falling 17 votes short with a second round set for today. And Adidas cuts its annual loss forecast and lifts its revenue guidance, with the German sportswear giant citing robust Yeezy shoe sales and a strong core business. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box, everybody. Thank you for joining. Jumana and myself will be with you all morning, filling in for Stephen Karen today. Let's get right to the big data release out overnight. China's third quarter economic growth coming in stronger than expected, up 4.9% on the year, boosting hopes that the world's second largest economy will meet or even exceed Beijing's target for about 5% growth this year. Now, that is well ahead of forecast, but still down from Q2. Let me take you through the detail, what we heard in terms of the breakdown of the different components. Industrial output and retail sales also both came in better than expected, while fixed asset investment cooled slightly. Let's get out to Sam, who joins us now from Singapore with more on these numbers. Sam, um, the key takeaway seems to be that the data is stronger than expected. Break it down for us, though. Should we be encouraged by the print that we've seen? Very good morning to you, ladies. Well, as you say, a stronger set of numbers that we got today as far as the market was concerned, but there are still weak pockets within this data. So we did actually see the economy performing better than what the market was forecasting throughout the third quarter, reading of 4.9%, as you say, better than what the market was looking at around 4.4%. And it did come off from that 6.3% that we saw in Q2. No doubt that this was a quarter which was characterized by persistent weak domestic demand with some of the pent-up demand that we'd seen over the summer starting to come off a bit. We saw softness in the services sector, deflationary risks starting to creep through, and also, of course, those weaker exports as well, which did hit around a three-year low. However, we did start to see some of those green shoots in the August data, and that momentum certainly continued to build in the September numbers as well as we got today, with the retail sales certainly being the bright spot in all of this, sitting up about 5.5%. So that was better than what the market was looking for as well. 
better than what we saw in August. So it looks like the consumption trend is heading in the right direction, although it still remains fragile, not as strong as the government perhaps would like. And that is down to a lot of sort of deeper structural issues. Of course, Chinese consumers are keeping the money in the bank. There are worries about long-term income expectations right now. And so they are, of course, trying to address some of that. We did see a bit of stabilization, as you mentioned, also in that manufacturing with the industrial output coming in better than expected too. And then we got the fixed asset investment, which was actually a bit of a surprise to the downside at 3.1% for the first nine months of the year. It really does look like it's a property investment that continues to be the big drag here, down 9.1%. But overall, a stronger set of numbers. And as far as economists that we've been speaking to uh, are saying, they do believe that it looks encouraging and that it should keep China on track towards that around 5% growth target that it is targeting for the full year. Back to you. Sam, thank you so much for that overview. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Country Garden because, of course, there have been plenty of concerns about what has been happening within the China property sector. Country Garden, one of the things we've been talking about. But the company has reiterated that it, it expects it will not be able to meet all of its offshore debt obligations. The comment comes as the grace period for payments on its $15 million coupon expired this morning with no word on whether the money has been paid. With nearly $11 billion in offshore bonds, a default by Country Garden would set the stage for one of China's biggest corporate debt restructurings. New data today showed continued weakness in the property sector with investments slipping 9.1% for the first nine months of the year compared to a year ago. So let's just take a quick look at how Asian markets have reacted to this better than expected GDP data coming out of China. And you can see the reaction actually has been quite negative. So we have the Shanghai Composite actually dipping in the overnight session down six tenths of a percent. Uh, and this despite also retail sales coming in better than expectations as well. So it's seems as though the risk-off sentiment that has been gripping markets the last couple of days is also weighing on Asian markets as well as investors continue to focus on the developments out of the Middle East, the flaring up of conflict yesterday. Hang Seng down two-tenths of a percent and then a quick look at the Nikkei as well down about a tenth of a percent uh, and, and again uh, still very much focused on the geopolitical complex as well as some of the geopolitical tensions also rising between U.S. and China here uh, with the U.S. Biden administration administration restricting advanced chip uh, further export uh, restrictions to the uh, to China in yesterday's hours as well that has hit some of the chip makers so the picture from Asian markets has been pretty negative let's welcome Mao Wang greater China economist from Bank of America to the program thank you for being with us this morning on the back of this um, pretty big data release our um, correspondent out in Singapore broke down the numbers for us but I'm curious your take on what we learned in terms of China growth Sure, thank you. So I think the third quarter num GDP number that came out this morning was certainly better than market ex uh, market's expectation and also our forecast. So it came out uh, at 4.9% year over year um, and uh, in sequential term, we also see quite a notable uh, pickup to 1.3% uh, quarter over quarter growth. So I'd say that um, that kind of uh, sequential uh, pickup improvement was consistent with some of the green shoots uh, in the data that we've seen uh, uh, lately. And that also confirmed our view that the worst period for growth 
um, has is already behind us, you know, from a sequential growth perspective. And if you look at the sub of some of the September uh, activity data, uh, we also see a slight improvement, uh, including the industrial production growth, the uh, investment growth, and also the um, retail sales number. Uh, certainly, it was better than uh, what the market was expected. So I think the improve the recent improvement in the data. Uh, was likely driven by, uh, first of all, um, the normalized economic activities, especially during the first summer you know, after China reopened. We all see the booming services consumption uh, in China, for example, like, uh, tourism, uh, travel. And uh, on the other hand, uh, I think it also uh, reflected the uh, effect of the recent policy relaxation since uh, August. The effect has started to kick in. And, and therefore, I think it's very encouraging to see uh, some improvement in the data. I'm looking at the uh, market reaction today, and we are seeing uh, a bit of a downturn in a number of uh, Chinese markets. And I wonder to what extent this is because the data is showing signs that the economy has bottomed and things are stabilizing, and therefore uh, investors are interpreting this as reducing the likelihood we could see some more significant stimulus from Chinese authorities. Yeah, I'd say that, that that's definitely some you know people's concern. Uh, but you know, if we look at some, you know, if you look at the whole set of data, I would say that despite the improvement that I just mentioned, uh, we don't think that those those numbers suggest that you know the Chinese economy is already back um, on a very strong footing. Especially if you look at the investment side, you can see that pro the private sector remains a quite a, neg uh, a notable drag uh, on the overall uh, growth. And therefore, you know, we think that in the near term, uh, the policy easing will uh, still be here to stay. And the you know, policymakers are very unlikely to withdraw uh, the policy support uh, in the near term. I think they, they're going to continue to do more uh, until they see sufficient uh, improvement. And, you know, when they're confident that the economy is back to the normal trajectory. And, you know, if we look at the policy options, I'd say that definitely there's still a lot of potential policy levers that they can pull, uh, including a further relaxation in the property policy of, or, you know, uh, further support uh, on the fiscal side or, you know, continued support uh, use, by using the PBOC's structural monetary policy tool. So um, we, we, you know, we, we at least at, at the moment, we're not too concerned uh, that, you know, the policy easing will go away uh, right away. Uh, Mia, I want to take it back to what you were saying about uh, potential green shoots in the economy. Are, are you seeing any green shoots at all in the property sector? It feels like not a day goes by that there isn't another headline that we're focused on in Country Garden, whether they're going to miss a coupon payment or uh, that this is going to have broader ramifications on the sector as a whole. You could say that so much of that negativity is already priced in to the property sector, but are there any signs of stabilization or even uh, green shoots in that space as well? Uh, I'd say that if we focus on the physical uh, property market, uh, we have started to notice some uh, improvement in the data uh, since the, the, the relaxation, policy relaxation uh, in August. For example, if we look at the secondary home market, it has rebounded quite notably uh, you know, and you know, back to, already back to the level that we've seen last year. And uh, also, you know, if you look at the, the property sector data that was released this morning, certainly I think the overall investment remains weak. Um, you know, new start remain in contraction, home sales remains in contraction. But if you look at the uh, completion, property completion, it continued to see a double-digit growth uh, in completion. And this suggested that, you know, a lot of the policy measures that uh, government, the government has put in to ensure the project uh, 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 completion and delivery 
it's it, it's playing out, and, and that's you know why we're seeing such a, a strong growth in completion, and that potentially will offer some. Uh, I, I guess some buffer to the overall investment growth, despite I guess in the near term, uh, new start could remain under pressure. How do you think the uh, PBOC and Chinese authorities are thinking about the weakness of the renminbi here? Uh, one argument I've heard is that because CPI, PPI are sitting at such low levels, CPI is basically zero, PPI is in negative territory, it's less of a concern for them. The weakness of the renminbi is less of a concern because actually they wouldn't mind having a bit of an inflationary impulse here. I think um, you know, the PBOC is probably, you know, if you look at the past, I think what they have been concerned about is probably not like a certain, about the level of where the currency is. They, 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 they will probably be more concerned about the pace. In other words, they probably don't like a rapid depreciation within a very short period of time. And um, that's what, I think that's, that's the message that they, um, the, the top policymakers have, have mentioned at the July Polybury meeting that, that we saw earlier. And, and, and that's why I think, you know, uh, given the, the, the pressure on the currency front, uh, that kind of limit the, the PBOC's uh, uh, room for uh, any sort of aggressive uh, policy rate uh, easing. And, and, and therefore, you know, on the monetary policy front, what we are expecting, I guess, in the near term um, is uh, for the PBOC to, you know, continue using the structural or targeted monetary policy that they have been uh, using over the past one year or so, um, meaning that they are going to continue some uh, credit expansion support to some of the specific sector that they, they think are important. Miao, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your analysis with us. Miao Uyang, a Greater China Economist from Bank of America. For more on China's recovery picture, head over to CNBC.com. All right, Juliana, let's take a look Thank at you. how U.S. markets closed yesterday. A bit of a mixed bag, but mostly uh, these indices ended up around the flat line. You can see the Dow just shy of 34,000, slightly positive on the day. They were still about 5% from its 52-week high, so uh, still some way to go. In terms of the S&P and the Nasdaq, we did see a bit of a dip, mostly for tech stocks yesterday, down a quarter of a percent. Uh, this after further restrictions from the Biden administration on export licenses for high-chip equipment, of course, that was going to impact NVIDIA the most. We saw a sharp downtrade for NVIDIA in trading. A lot of focus on the bank's earnings. Uh, we had the likes of Goldman Sachs come in better than expectations. Also, similar theme for Bank of America. That gave some of the regional banks a bit of a boost as well. But the big move yesterday was in U.S. Treasuries. Once more, we saw a rise in U.S. yields. Ten-year notes sitting at 4.83, about 13 basis points higher yesterday, now at the highest level in 16 years. Also the front end, two-year notes, 5.20, 5.19 is where we are right now. Also the highest level in 17 years. As investors start to look ahead to the potential of another rate hike out of the Fed at its next meeting, this after much better than expected retail sales came through yesterday. So that was the catalyst for that big sell-off in yields. As for the U.S. dollar, this is the picture in currency space. And you can see that today we are trading pretty much side for the most part, the euro sitting at about 105.70. The pound also continues its, uh, well, I would say downward trend, 121.80. We had slightly softer than expected regular pay growth come in yesterday. Again, over here in the UK, people have started to dial down expectations of any further hiking policy out of the Bank of England. Switching over to commodities, and of course, we are very much focused on the developments out of the Middle East. This tends to show up 
in energy. You can see that TI today is trading about 2.2% higher. We instantly jumped about $2 in trading yesterday. There also has been a drawdown of inventories that's giving a, a bit of a support to the complex as well. But it has been a very volatile couple of days. Today, though, the picture is more constructive for Brent and for WTI. Well, we got some more bank earnings yesterday. Let me run through what we learned. Goldman Sachs reported a smaller than expected 33% fall in third quarter profit. An annual rise in investment banking revenues offset impairments from the sale of lending platform GreenSky and a $358 million write-down of its real estate investments. CEO David Solomon told analysts he has never been more confident about the Wall Street giant and expects to see continued recovery in capital markets and strategic activity. Bank of America beat profit forecasts for the third quarter, boosted by better-than-expected investment banking fees, while sales and trading revenue hit their highest level in more than a decade at $4.4 billion. Net interest income also rose more than expected, up 4.5% on the year to $14.4 billion. However, the bank's closely watched unrealized losses on securities hit $131.6 billion. That was up almost 25% from Q2 as global bonds sold off. CEO Brian Moynihan told CNBC the high rate environment is starting to hit the U.S. economy. Consumers' activity has slowed down. It moves around from which categories, but in the aggregate across $4 trillion, 37 million uh, checking customers, it's slowed by half. And that means the consumer is being slowed down by the interest rate environment and all the stuff going on. You're seeing that, that deterioration of deposit balances in consumer and those, in those uh, median income households down a little bit. That means they're spending some money in excess of what they bring in. And so that means the economy is slowed down, consistent with a low growth, low inflation economy. I think that will play through the numbers. This is real-time data as opposed to lagging data, so we can see this every week. Also coming up on Squawk Box this morning, U.S. President Joe Biden is forced to change his Middle East trip plans after a blast at a Gaza hospital kills hundreds. We have the latest from the region after the break. Plus, investors are awaiting results from Netflix and Tesla later today with EV price cuts and streamer password sharing all in focus. We're, we're going to be looking at what Wall Street is expecting later in the show. And as earnings season continues here in Europe, we'll break down ABB's results with CEO Bjorn Rosengren. Do not miss that first on CNBC interview at 7.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Hundreds of people have reportedly been killed in a blast at a hospital in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority's health minister accused Israel of a massacre with up to 500 reported deaths. Palestinian officials say it was caused by an Israeli airstrike, while Israel says the hospital was hit by a rocket fired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group. It denies any involvement. The incident has sparked protests outside embassies in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Iran and Iraq, as well as in Ramallah in the West Bank, where violent clashes broke out with the police. Across the region, crowds waved Palestine and Hezbollah flags and chanted slogans in support of Palestinians.
The incident comes just hours before U.S. President Joe Biden touches down in Tel Aviv. He will hold talks with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu before meeting a group of first responders and families of those who lost loved ones. Biden had planned to travel to Jordan for a four-way summit with King Abdullah, President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, and Egypt's President Sisi, but that has been cancelled in light of the attack, with Jordan's foreign minister saying the war is, quote, pushing the region to the brink. Dan spoke to the foreign minister of Egypt, who said that he's hopeful Biden's visit will improve the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza. I hope that there will be a uh, determined effort to uh, allow for the entry of uh, humanitarian uh, goods and the provision of uh, safe areas and uh, safe corridors to disperse these goods and to uh, provide uh, shelter and safety for the Palestinians within Gaza. Uh, we hope that also the broader uh, perspectives of the end of the conflict on the basis of the two-state solution uh, will also be reiterated uh, as the uh, viable manner to uh, free the region and the two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, from these constant cycles of violence. This is not the first time that this has happened. In Gaza, this is the fourth escalation. In, uh, the, in the West Bank, we have had two intifadas uh, with uh, great suffering on the part of the two peoples. Uh, it can only be expected that as long as there is a lack of achievement in uh, the establishment of uh, two states, uh, there will continue to be uh, frustrations, and, and this frustration, unfortunately, uh, transfers to uh, conflict and violence and loss of life. Do you believe the president will be able to make a difference here? Because as we've been discussing, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been talking about uh, a long and protracted war, and that also seems to be something that he is preparing Western allies and Western leaders for as well. So how far are we from a ceasefire or an end to these hostilities? Do you expect this to last for months, perhaps even longer? Well, I, I don't think it, it is uh, reasonable for me to speculate. Uh, you began your question by asking about uh, President Biden's uh, ability, and, and here we place great value uh, in, in the President of the United States as uh, the major world power to be able to uh, have a very determined impact in uh, dealing with uh, conflict situations and in uh, being able to uh, rally uh, support uh, for uh, a way forward that uh, prevents the continuing uh, strife, conflict, loss of life. Uh, again, uh, this is uh, a relationship, bilateral relationship between Egypt and the United States that is built on uh, cooperation and trust and uh, parallelity of interests. And I believe that uh, we have uh, worked in the past and continue to work to achieve peace and security in the region certainly an end of, to this conflict uh, in the short term related to the situation in Gaza, in the long term to the uh, implementation of the internationally recognized uh, and consensus on uh, the need for a two-state solution. That was the Egyptian foreign minister speaking to our colleague Dan Murphy. Let's bring in H.A. Hellier, the international security studies expert from Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Royal United Services Institute. Good morning to you. Uh, horrendous, just horrendous news continues to come out of the region. Uh, we know that the U.S. Pres President Biden is on his way to Israel as we speak. 
Uh, but he was also supposed to be going to Jordan as well. And that leg of the trip has now been cancelled, given what happened in the last 24 hours. To what extent do you think that is actually going to derail the possibility of there being some form of a ceasefire or a solution agreed now that the president is coming to the region? So the fact that President Biden is still going to Israel means that he sees value in uh, appearing in Jerusalem alongside Israeli officials. Um, now, there's, there's two parts to that. One is he's going there to show solidarity with America's closest ally in the region, and that's going to look really bad. And that's going to look really bad because the striking of the hospital uh, last night that led to hundreds and hundreds of civilians uh, dying um, is something that has really set off emotions even further and deeper across the region in ways that I've never seen before in my lifetime. Um, the, the amount of anger um, that is spreading across the region right now as a result of that attack uh, is really quite extraordinary. And <clears throat> And everybody thinks that it's the Israelis um, through an Israeli strike that carried out uh, that attack. Uh, of course, the Israelis are saying otherwise, but you know, considering the Israelis have uh, been talking about the fact that everything is uh, is a legitimate target, um, if they suspect that there's anything to do with Hamas, and they've they've mentioned hospitals and our hospitals need to evacuate and so on. Um, um, quite a few times over the past week. So, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable that a lot of people um, are convinced that it is actually an Israeli strike. So that's, you know, the negative aspect. The positive aspect is that I don't think that Israel is going to launch its ground offensive as long as uh, Biden is en route, uh, nor when he's actually there. So the, the offensive or the further escalation, the offensive has been delayed. It's not about bad weather. Um, it's down to international pressure. It's down to the presence of international uh, political figures, including President Biden. So um, the the ground offensive, the escalation of it has been delayed. And I think that's good. I think that as long as you have those sorts of windows of opportunity, there's a possibility for brokering some kind of ceasefire where the Israelis cease their bombardment. We get humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip and we find some way to de-escalate. Let me ask you about the possibility for more widespread regional involvement. Uh, for the past week, daily, there's been speculation as to whether or not Hezbollah, the paramilitary group based in the southern part of Lebanon, is going to get drawn into the war as well. And so far, there have been a few skirmishes, but Hezbollah have stopped short of getting fully involved. Today, they're calling for a day of rage in protest at the attack or the explosion that occurred at the hospital within Gaza. To your mind, is this going to be the breaking point? Is this going to be the catalyst for the broader regional involvement in what's happening? All bets are off. Let's be really clear here. Um, at the moment, of course, the Israelis are disputing that it was an Israeli strike that led to the uh, the complete destruction of the Al-Ahli hospital um, in Gaza. Um, again, they're going to have to show incredible proof of that because as of 
uh, right now. I don't think the region uh, en masse, uh, political leaders, public opinion, I don't think the region will take it seriously because there have been many times in the past where Israel has denied responsibility, said they're doing an investigation, and in the end they admit that they did it, but they don't hold anybody accountable. Um, a clear case in point, uh, Shirin Abu Akleh, um, Palestinian-American journalist who was killed by Israeli fire. Um, they completely denied it. Then they said there's an investigation. Then they said, yes, we did it, but nobody was really held responsible for it. So uh, I think right now what you see is a region that really is convinced, and it's going to take quite a bit for it not to be convinced that it was Israeli fire. The idea that it's uh, a rocket from a Palestinian Islamic Jihad um, or another militant group um, at the moment seems incredibly dubious because the the amount of firepower that would be necessary is quite significant. And I'm not sure that we've seen any rockets from the Palestinian militant side that would be able to carry that out. So um, uh, everything is possible, of course, but you know, I, th I think that it's going to take a lot to uh, get the region to believe that actually this wasn't an Israeli strike, especially considering all the language that has been coming out of uh, of the Israelis over the past ten days, which you know doesn't really distinguish between Palestinian civilians and combatants. Um, the Israeli president made it very clear a few days ago that he regarded not only Hamas but an entire nation responsible for what happened uh, last Saturday in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and you have the far right present in the Israeli government um, that says all sorts of things right. about Palestinians that are quite shocking. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, so in that regard, all bets are off. I do think that there is a, a rationalization process underway among uh, all, uh, all powers in the Region. And what I mean by that is that Hezbollah is not looking to get himself uh, get itself embroiled into a conflict right. that can lead to mass destruction of southern Lebanon. Uh, neither is Iran um, in terms right. of you know escalation that would cause a massive price for them. I think they calculate very carefully right. about what they're about to do. Why, as you say, there have been skirmishes, but I think both the Israelis and Hezbollah are keen not to let this go beyond a particular point. Uh, let me just wrap up by asking uh, what could lead to a de-escalation here and is there anything that President Biden could say or do on this diplomatic uh, mission that could change the trajectory of the conflict? So I think it was one of your own reporters uh, yesterday that said that Hamas um, was actually willing to release all of the hostages in exchange for a cessation of bombing. Um, and I think that was one of your own reporters. Um, and if that's the case, then there's an opportunity there um, to come to some sort of ceasefire. President Biden has all of the leverage and pressure that he requires in order to get the Israelis to stand down. Um, the question is whether or not he will he will actually do so, because at the present moment in time, the UN, the EU, international rights organizations, Israeli rights organizations, they're all expressing incredible concern about the increasing and mounting loss of civilian life uh, in the Gaza Strip. Um, it, we're talking about thousands of people, and it's just rising every day. Um, the humanitarian crisis that is underway is said to increase exponentially so. So the, the, the necessity for such a de-escalation has been there 
since day one, and I think it's only getting worse and worse and worse every moment of every day. Um, the impacts of all of that on security, both within the region, but also internationally, because you, you have to keep in mind, these things never... Uh, never stay in one place. They draw in other uh, other factors, other powers. Um, you've already seen Russia um, express in diplomatic terms, you know, its own involvement. Not not in terms of you know backing uh, any uh, any silly conspiracy about you know providing Hamas with weapons or you know nonsense like that. But it draws other powers into a wider discussion and a wider conflict. Right. Um, and I think yeah. it's very dangerous. And we've got to take that very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just to, to quote the reporting that you were citing, um, our, our colleague from NBC News, Richard Engel, put out a tweet yesterday saying a senior Hamas leader tells NBC News that the group is willing to release all civilian hostages, foreigners and Israelis if the strikes on Gaza stop. So that was uh, per Richard Engel reporting. Thank you very much for joining us today on the show. H.A. Hellier, international security studies expert from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Royal United Services Institute. Now over in Washington, uh, Republican Jim Jordan has lost his bid to become the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. Jordan, a vocal loyalist of Donald Trump, lost Tuesday's ballot by 20 votes. His nomination has split the party over his refusal to admit Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. The House is set to vote again, but Jordan will need to win over as many as 17 House Republicans to secure the position. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho weekdays on CNBC.